You're listening to The Living Word with Danny Hodges of Calvary Chapel Fellowship in St. Pete. Circumcision is submitting yourself to the most sensitive part of your life. And it's the hidden part. It's what nobody else but God sees. And it's that part, it's that part that is connected with intimacy and fruitfulness. And the only way you're going to be fruitful for God is to let Him continue His work of circumcision in your life. The act of circumcision isn't as readily performed today. It was a symbol of a covenant between God and followers, an intimate and sensitive connection. That connection is now made through Jesus and His death on the cross, but the concept remains. Following Jesus fully requires digging into sensitive areas of your life. It may even be painful at times. Pastor Danny will remind you today that this continuing act of submission is necessary if you want to bear fruit for the kingdom of heaven. Now here's Pastor Danny in the book of Romans chapter 4 as he continues his message, Footsteps of the Faith. Abraham's obedience to God's call in his life. You can't appreciate it. You got to do a little more reading. You got to do a little more studying. Now, I've done that, and so I want to throw some things out to you that I think will help us really appreciate Abraham's following God's call in his life. For example, Joshua chapter 24 and verse 2. Joshua chapter 24, verse 2. Joshua said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshiped other gods. That's Abraham's background. That's what he was doing when God called him. He was worshiping other gods. Genesis chapter 11, just before what I read about God had said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, your father's household. You go back to chapter 11, and here's what it says. Verse 31, Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, his daughter-in-law Sarah, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans. That's where Abraham was living. That's where he grew up. Why is that important? It's the area today of Iraq, Kuwait, Turkey, Syria, that area. It's also in ancient times called ancient Mesopotamia. In Abraham's day, Ur was a city of progress and luxury. Archaeologists have unearthed three-story buildings, indoor baths, cosmetic supplies, well-equipped kitchens. They've also discovered clay tablets used in schools. That's ancient school books. 
And these clay tablets have revealed that students in those schools were studying sometimes, most of the time, three languages at one time. They were very smart. They were very educated. It was a very advanced civilization. So when God called Abraham, he was not only leaving family and friends, he was leaving a life of comfort. He was leaving a life of security. He's going to have to trust God. He's going to have to trust God for the kids. They're leaving the best schools. He's going to have to trust God for taking care of him and his family. A lot of people can't wait to leave their hometown. I don't think that was Abraham's deal. <laughs> it was a great place to live. If you look real carefully at the text, I think there's an indication that Abraham, when he first followed God's call, he didn't go all in. He didn't obey completely. What do you mean by that? The end of verse 31 of Genesis chapter 11, here's what it says. He went out leaving Ur of the Chaldeans, but when they came to Haran, they settled there. Why would he settle in Haran? That's not his destination. That's not the land of promise, as we call it, as the Bible calls it. Why would he settle in Haran? <laughs> Good question to ask. One of the main gods of Ur of the Chaldeans was the god Sin, interestingly named, the moon god. Abraham and his family would have worshipped the moon god, among other gods. The moon god had two principal places to be worshipped. One was Ur of the Chaldeans. I bet you never guessed where the second one was. Haran. I'm not reading into the text. Listen to what it says, the next verse in verse 32 of Genesis 11. Terah lived 205 years and he died in Haran. And then chapter 12 opens and said, The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household. But it wasn't until dad died that he obeyed completely. That brings up a whole host of New Testament thoughts in my mind. It takes me to places like Luke chapter 9. And in Luke chapter 9, verse 57, they were walking along the road and the man said to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, you better think deeply about what you're committing to here. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, first let me go and bury my father. The idea is, dad's not dead and we're doing the funeral, but when dad dies, then I'll come. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. He's talking spiritual words, suggesting that the dad wasn't a follower of Jesus. Still another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. You think that's an isolated incident of those kind of words by Jesus? I don't think so. You get to Mark's gospel, chapter 3. And Mark chapter 3, it tells us that Jesus' mother and brothers, Mother Mary and his siblings, they think he's out of his mind. And they're going to go and get him and take him home. And it tells us there in the record, Mark chapter 3, verse 31, that Jesus' mother and brothers arrived standing outside. They sent one in, someone in to get him. 
The crowd was sitting around him. They told him, your mother and brothers are outside and they want you. They're looking for you. And he said, who are my mother and my brothers? And then he pointed to those around him in the circle, those closest to him, the closest disciples. And he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. Luke chapter 14 and verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. He's got a big church. He's got a big church. A lot of people following him. And he turns. He turns to them and he said, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross cannot be my disciple. And then he tells them, first sit down and consider the decision you're making. First sit down and consider the cost. Otherwise you'll begin, you won't follow through. You won't complete it. And you won't be all in. And he culminates it in verse 33 and says in the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Listen, those are Jesus' words. Those aren't my words. That's exactly what he said to Abraham. When God called him, he said, leave your family. Leave your friends. And go to a place I'll show you. And he didn't even tell him where he was going to be. He didn't give him the coordinates. By the way, turn here, left, and you, that's the place. No. He didn't even tell him. Where the final destination was. Gave him a direction. Off we go. That takes faith. Why do I spend so much time on the first one? Because if you don't get the first one right, none of the other ones make any difference at all. This is the one that gets you into the kingdom. This is the one that gets you in relationship with Jesus Christ. This is the one where everything starts. This is the starting place following God's call in your life. And then once you say yes, now he wants to teach you how to live by faith. You got to completely abandon previous false beliefs and idols. And Abraham had a lot of them. Fascinating in Genesis 12 as he begins his journey of faith. And another verse that on the surface, you don't really catch the impact of it and the depth of what's happening here without a little more study. Genesis 12, verse 6, he traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. It doesn't mean anything to us, but everybody knew about this tree. Everybody in the area knew about this tree. It's a landmark. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. That's an interesting statement. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I'll give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. A few weeks ago, I was reading a book by Chuck Swindoll, if that name means anything to you. I've received from his ministry all these years, and he's still being used of the Lord in his 80s. And he wrote a book on Abraham. I didn't read this book because I knew I was teaching on Romans 4. I was just reading it. And as I was studying for Romans 4, I remembered something I read in this book. Abram camped beside the oak of Moray, Genesis 12, 6, which could be translated the tree of teaching. It was most likely a large table or oak that served as a prominent landmark. The Hebrew expression suggested it had become a local shrine or place of gathering where teachers spoke to the crowds. Historical records tell us that the Canaanites had shrines in groves of oak trees, and Moray may have been one of their cult centers. Worshippers of fertility gods believed that large trees were evidence of the reproductive power associated with the area. Superstitious 
false god belief. They thought one could become more fertile by worshiping there. And with that insight, you have to believe it's very possible that Abraham still, you know, fresh in his faith, fresh in his walk and learning, he has to learn to trust God that it doesn't matter where it is and there's not some tree that's going to make his wife more fertile to produce the seed of promise. You got to get rid of all those previous superstitious beliefs, all those idols. <laughs> then it's interesting what happens after this. It says there was a famine in the land in verse 10, and without prayer, no record of Abraham asking God, what do we do about the famine? Which way to go? How are you going to supply for us? He just leaves, and he heads south. That's a wrong direction toward Egypt. That's a representation of the world. That's away from the will of God. And when he gets there, he realizes kings in these areas, they loved harems. They loved having big harems with good-looking women. And sometimes they would kill a guy just to get his wife. And so he says to his wife, Sarah, hey, when we get there, tell him you're my sister. And that way it'll save my life from you being taken into one of their harems. Interesting side note. Abraham married a woman that they had the same father, but different mothers. So there's an element of truth in what he's asking his wife to do, but it's totally deceptive. It's just to save his own skin. He's not trusting God, and he's not really following the Lord's lead because he's going the wrong direction. He's headed south. He's in Egypt, and he gets in trouble for it. But he'll learn. You know what happens next? God's blessing him materially. His flocks are multiplying. But Lot, his nephew, who's also traveling this road of faith with him, God's blessing Lot too. Well, there's not enough grass and sustenance in the area to sustain both of their blessed herds. <laughs> and they begin quarreling. Abraham goes to Lot and said, look, we're brothers. Let's not quarrel. Here's what we'll do. We're going to go different ways so, you know, the land can provide for us. And whichever way you go, I'll go the other way. You got first choice. Tells us Lot looked down towards Sodom. And the grass was greener there. And he made a decision based on where the grass is greener. And Lot goes that way. And Abraham trusts God and says, okay, grass is greener that way. But I'm trusting God. I'm going the opposite. He's becoming unselfish. He's trusting God. And in becoming unselfish, he's getting wise. But guess what happens in the first part of chapter 14? Lot, because he's made a decision, he's ended up near Sodom. Then he ends up dwelling in Sodom, wickedness in Sodom. He succumbs to it in a way. He doesn't really do the things they're doing, but he is a compromising Christian, if you will. And every time you compromise, here's what's going to happen. You're going to get taken captive by the enemy. Guess what? A bunch of guys come down, they're kings and their armies, and they capture Lot, and they take them captive. And Abraham finds out about it, and he could have said, well, you got what you deserved. You made a bad decision. I made the right decision. But he doesn't do that. He acts out of compassion. And out of mercy, he goes. And God gives he and 318 men a miraculous victory against all these armies. And he rescues his nephew Lot from being held captive by the enemy. He's ministering. He's ministering. 
Then the last part of chapter 14, he comes back from the victory, rescuing his nephew Lot. And this fellow named Melchizedek, he's a priest. He's priest of righteousness, but he's also a king. Under the law, you couldn't be a priest and a king, but this guy, ooh, he is. He's a priest and he's a king. He's king of Salem, which is king of peace. He's priest of righteousness. He's king of peace. He brings out bread and wine. I wonder what that means. Melchizedek, we're told, had no beginning of days or end of life. He doesn't have a human father. He doesn't have a human mother. He's Christ. And Abraham gives Melchizedek one-tenth, a tithe of all of the spoils from the victory. And now Abraham is learning that this walk of faith, that every time God blesses you materially, you want to honor God with the first fruits. And that's what true spiritual descendants of Abraham do. Honor God with the first fruits. And then in chapter 15, it's fascinating. You know what happens? God confirms and ratifies the covenant of the promise of this coming seed. He confirms it. He ratifies it. You always did that in those days by sacrifice. It's kind of like the contract where you're going to sign. You're going to sign. And there's usually two parties. And the party over here, you have the covenant. You have the agreement. Party over here. And the way that you sign the covenant is you split the sacrifices in half. So there's half here and half there. And the parties would walk in between the cut sacrifices. And what that meant was, and everybody in those days knew this, what you're saying is, I'm committed to this, and if I don't keep my part in the covenant I'm making with you, may I become like the sacrifice. It was a serious thing. It's kind of like signing in blood. <laughs> when you read Genesis 15... They get the sacrifice, they cut it in half, and the two halves are laid out, and then God puts Abraham into a deep sleep. And you know what it tells us in chapter 15? When the signing is done, Abraham doesn't even have a part in it. God himself walks in between the two halves. And what God is saying is, it all depends on me. It doesn't depend on Abraham. It all depends on me. It's what I'm going to do. And it's a covenant, really, between him and himself. How does that work? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Son, here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to go down to that wicked planet, those wicked people, and I got a plan. We're going to give them righteousness, your righteousness. But in order to give them your righteousness, here's the deal. You have to take their wickedness. What plan? That's the plan. Okay, Father, may your will be done. And he comes. God, Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit walk in between the pieces of their sacrifice and they say, we're going to do for the world what they can't do for themselves. Wow. Wow. Did you hear me say wow? Pause and say this. Ready? Come on, say it. All of Abraham's good works were simply evidence of a changed heart, not the basis of his salvation. The basis of his salvation is his faith in a coming Savior and the work that the Savior would do and that really the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would do together. And then in chapter 16, guess what happens? 
Abraham makes one of the biggest blunders of his walk of faith. Years continue to pass, no child. Sarah's still not pregnant. And she suggests to Abraham, well, maybe God wants us to help him out. Have a relationship with my, our handmaid, Hagar. Abraham says, okay. And the fruit of that decision is still with us today. Terrible blunder. Big one. And after all that, and everything I'm going through right now, guess what? It's before he was circumcised. And after all that, he gets the sign of circumcision. And the sign of circumcision, Romans 2 tells us, a man is not circumcised if he's just outwardly. No. No, circumcision is of the heart by the spirit. And so no outward stuff, no outward religious stuff is going to do you any good unless God's done the work in the heart. Here's the truth. Abraham had left everything to follow God's call upon his life, but he was still a very imperfect man. Can anybody relate? Everything circumcision represented would be the ongoing sanctifying reality of his life. Circumcision is submitting yourself to the most sensitive part of your life. And it's the hidden part. It's what nobody else but God sees. And it's that part, it's that part that is connected with intimacy and fruitfulness. And the only way you're going to be fruitful for God is to let him continue his work of circumcision in your life. And that's point number four. You will persevere in faith. You're going to make some mistakes. Some of us can make some big ones. Some of us have made some big ones. But if you are the real deal, and if God really has done a work in your life and you followed his call, as imperfect as you are, you'll prove your genuineness by your perseverance. This is a wonderful proverb. Though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again, but the wicked are brought down by calamity. You can fail, and you're going to fail. It's not an excuse for failure. Grace is not an excuse for failure. Mercy is not an excuse for failure. But failure, failure is reality. But if you're the real deal, you're going to get back up. John writes in 1 John, and he says, those who have been born of God have God's seed in them, the Holy Spirit. And you cannot continue to live a life of sin. And yet John opens in chapter 1 and he says, if we say we have no sin, we make him out to be a liar and the truth is not in us. Perseverance in faith. And then there's one last one. You following the footsteps of Abraham? You're a tent dweller. Hebrews tells us these guys lived in tents. Why? Because they were looking for a city with foundation whose builder and maker is God. They were looking for a heavenly home. And they were headed for a heavenly home. They weren't looking for Las Vegas or Los Angeles or New York City or St. Petersburg or Tampa. They weren't looking for anything earthly. They were living this earthly life, but their sights were set beyond this life. And if you are a true spiritual descendant of Abraham, there's your hope and there's where your longing is. 
And there's where your heart is. And there's where your head is. Your head is in the clouds. And your heart is in the clouds. And you're living this life. But you're living this life. We're so glad that you joined us for today's edition of The Living Word. Thanks for being a part of our listening audience. If you'd like to hear today's message from the Book of Romans again, or hear more from Pastor Danny Hodges, visit ccfstpete.church. You're also invited to join our Bible reading plan. Just look under the Resources tab on our website for more information. As you make your way through the Bible, you might be surprised how something you read hits your heart exactly where you're at or what you're going through. God's Word has a way of doing that, and it's unmistakably God's way of speaking to you. As we wrap up our time with you today, we'd like to take a moment to ask you to partner with us here on The Living Word. Would you join with us in praying for the listeners of this program? You never know how someone might be impacted by hearing about God over the radio, even if they weren't intending to. Pray that listeners would be open to hearing the gospel message. Pray also that we'd continue seeking God's will for this program in teaching the Word and reaching the world. We'd also like to ask you to pray about supporting The Living Word financially. If you feel led, you can find a way to do this through our website, ccfstbete.church. Just click on the Give tab. We're so grateful for your support. Thanks for praying, giving, and listening here on The Living Word.